On today's pod, we have another recording of Rai Match, and this week we have three professors who most of you are probably familiar with, Dr. George, Dr. Johnson, and Dr. Foster, and they discuss their research experience, um, their teaching, and they offer some advice for us students. So please lean in and enjoy this conversation with Dr. George, Johnson, and Foster. So, um, yeah, so I'm, uh, my name's Noel George, and I'm a faculty member in the, uh, obviously, the Department of Chemistry and Biology, and I've been at Ryerson for oh, around 21 years now. Uh, my role uh, is mostly as a uh, teaching emphasis faculty member, so uh, I don't run a traditional lab-based uh, research program. Um, but I focused my efforts on teaching, particularly large uh, first-year courses, um, and then also uh, a lot of service. Um, and in my time, I've been, for example, the uh, academic coordinator of the first year in common science office for uh, about seven years or so. I've also been a program director in the department. And I'm also involved with the Chang School of Continuing Education as an academic coordinator there. So that's what I do mostly. Okay, so it's different than most professors because you don't do any research in the labs? Uh, no lab-based research. I do some chemical education research, which we might touch upon uh, later on, but it, that doesn't require a laboratory. Um, and I don't uh, typically have any graduate students, for example. Okay, okay thank you. And Dr. Johnson, if you want to introduce yourself. Uh, yeah, I, I'm obviously Ann Johnson. I've been at Ryerson for about 20 years, a little bit longer than Dr. George. I started off teaching mostly organic chemistry here at uh, Ryerson. And I guess I've sort of moved along more into uh, my strong points, which is sort of biochemistry and pharmaceutical chemistry. I've also, I've had a number of roles here at Ryerson since I started. So I think in terms of administrative work, I, for a while, I was looking after the Chang School courses, similar to Dr. George, except that I did it with both the biology and the chemistry courses. And then I was uh, the chemistry program director for about five years, I think. And then I've been the academic coordinator for first-year science for the last couple of years. Okay, perfect, thank you. And Dr. Foster? Hi, everybody. I'm Deborah Foster, and uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm pleased to be part of this group. Uh, so I'm a full professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biology, and I've actually been at Ryerson for over 30 years. Uh, and I teach biochemistry. I also teach uh, immunology courses, including uh, most recently the infection and immunity course. And I teach a number of grad courses as well. I do have an externally funded research program that focuses in on GI pathogens. And I know you've got a question later on that asks more about my research. So maybe I'll save it. Uh, I'll save the rest of that for uh, that question. Um, in terms of my administrative capacities, I've served in a number of different administrative capacities. Uh, I was the founding director of the Molecular Science Graduate Program, 
and served uh, as the director for 11 years. That was a very exciting uh, time for me. I also served as the undergraduate director for the chemistry and biology program. Many of you won't, won't know, but way back when, we actually had a, a single program that was chemistry and biology combined. And so I was the undergrad director for that. Uh, I've also served as the interim dean of the Yates School of Graduate Studies. And um, I currently hold a cross appointment at the Faculty of Dentistry at U of T. And I have held a cross appointment uh, at the Hospital for Sick Children Research Institute for over 20 years. And then finally, I'm also a trustee on the Royal Canadian Institute for Science, which uh, I might mention a little later on when um, I think in some of your later questions, but it's an interesting opportunity for me to be able to help bring high level science both research and education to the public. So thank you. Thank you. So it looks like you're really involved in a lot here at Ryerson and other um, areas as well. Um, so if you can just tell us a bit about how you got here, um, like how you got to your position today and to your positions throughout your career, um, like any majoring, major transitions in schooling. Uh, Dr. Foster, if you want to. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So um, I, my hometown is Toronto. And uh, I went for all my schooling in Toronto, elementary, junior high, high school, and I did all three degrees at U of T. Um, so there's nothing terribly uh, unique about that. But I did think about this question and I thought, what, what is it that I think might be quite interesting to tell you? And, and I thought about the role of serendipity in one's life. And it played an important role for me. So I had decided uh, to, to go into the sciences, um, specifically chemistry and biology, uh, sorry, uh, biochemistry and chemistry, double specialist degree at U of T uh, for my undergrad. And, um, but I had no real plan as to what I was going to do post my undergrad. And I was in third year and um, we had a biochemistry lab exam. And I fortunately did fairly well on that exam. And the professor, for that course, who is who was a professor in the Department of Biochemistry at U of T, came up to me after the exams were handed back, and he told me about a summer student program, much like what we have here at Ryerson, where students are um, hired to serve as summer students in a research lab and um, to, to work in the research lab. And he invited me to work for him for that summer. I knew nothing about the program. I wasn't aware of it at all. I, grad school hadn't even really been on my radar. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And so I took advantage of it and I did it and I really enjoyed it. And here we are all these years later. But I really felt like that was a pivotal moment for me. And I guess the reason I'm telling you this story is because I think it's really important for people to be open to opportunities Sometimes, you know, opportunity knocks and it's it's a good idea, especially uh, for younger people. It's a really good idea to take advantage of that to find out what's what's involved. Let's 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 see if this is for me. Uh, and so what I would encourage you all to do is to just simply be open to opportunities. And sometimes these things happen as I as quite happened by, to me by serendipity. And yet it turned out to be very fortunate for me. So. Yes, that's, that was it. Sorry, that's actually a common theme that we have on our panels. A lot of the professors ended up in their position just by chance and luck and through connections. So 
I think it's very important to take up those opportunities because it could be your future career and that could lead to the rest of your life. So it absolutely could. And so that's what I would, I would definitely say, be open to opportunities. And when opportunity knocks, sometimes it'll be a little bit out there. You didn't think about that. It's, you know, if, if it's something that might be potentially interesting, take advantage of it and pursue it and see if it, it if it's a good fit for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, Dr. Johnson, if you want to just tell us how you got here, um, any major transitions that led to, led to where you are today? Um, well, I, I don't really have a hometown because we've moved around a lot. So I started off school when I was four or five uh, in Quebec. And then around somewhere in during grade one, we moved to London, Ontario, and I did a couple of years there. And then we moved to New Zealand and I went to school there for three years and I really wanted to stay. <laughs> um, we went, uh, the school system there is a little bit different. So we were actually at a private school, but the private school fees there are nowhere near as expensive as here in Canada. So my parents probably could have put me up in the private school, but no, not an option <laughs> as far as they were concerned. They're very much in favor of public education. And so I had to come home with uh, my parents and my sister. And we, uh, my dad actually had a job. They called him up, Western did, um, offered him a job. And uh, so he took it up. And so we went and lived back in uh, London where I finished elementary school and then high school and then I went to U of T and I started there in our wanting to do a microbiology program because I had already done work in research labs at that point. Um, my dad had some connections with a, a hospital president who got me a job in one of the research labs there and actually I was shared between a couple of different labs. And all the people I worked with were microbiologists. They were doing um, what we would call molecular genetics. So I thought that's what microbiology was. <laughs> and then I went, got to U of T and started taking microbiology and discovered that that was not what microbiology <laughs> was all about. And, but I really loved my organic chemistry class. I liked how the electrons moved and I found it was really logical. And so I started to think about, well, how could I chain or you know I didn't really want to stay in microbiology so how could I change programs to have something that matched my interests more and I didn't want to do a chemistry program because there was no way I was going to take more calculus <laughs> and I didn't want to take physical chemistry and uh, from the friends I had taking analytical that didn't sound like much fun either so I settled on biochemistry and I didn't have to take any extra years or extra courses. So I just transferred into the biochemistry program, which I, and it's probably the same as when Deborah was at U of T that you had to have something like a 3.0 GPA minimum to get into the program. So it was very competitive and the entry was in your third year. So I was able to transfer into that program and uh, graduated. <clears throat> And then the question is, what was I going to do for grad school? So I was, I was always brought up with the expectation that I would go to get and get a PhD. So not doing one would be letting my parents down. 
So I went to grad school and I chose chemistry and I went to UBC and I worked in a, a lab there with uh, Martin Tanner, who's, uh, we did enzymology work. So I did a variety of uh, mechanistic studies on an enzyme at, that involved some synthesis, not anything new, but I, I followed procedures that were in papers as well as um, some biochemistry and molecular biology techniques. So I was sort of at the intersection of molecular biology and chemistry in my work. I, I never really liked the lab research part. I found, find it very frustrating or found it very frustrating, but I loved teaching. And I was able to get a job after I graduated as a, a type of a postdoc. It was The position was called a faculty intern, which sounds really fancy. But part of that meant that I was doing part of my work involved doing lab work and the rest I was teaching. And I also had to go to seminars that they had for the new faculty members at the University of Maryland. And then when that ended, we moved to Toronto because my husband got a job at York and I helped him set up his lab. And I wasn't really planning to do very much because I, I at that point I was pregnant and I had a young, I had a baby. <clears throat> and one of my husband's colleagues came over one day and with an ad for Ryerson and he said, you should apply for this. So I did. <laughs> and uh, that's basically how I got to Ryerson. So a little bit of luck there and connections. Yeah, we've been asking. Sorry, Steph. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, no, because both uh, Dr. Foster and Dr. Johnson, you guys both did um, schooling at U of T. So I was just wondering how you got to Ryerson. So it was just based on a job posting, Dr. Yeah. Johnson? Oh, okay. Okay. And Dr. I've never heard of Ryerson before. Oh, yeah, because it was fairly new. It is fairly new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Ryerson is, has actually existed since probably the 1940s, but oh. I had never really heard of it as, you know, even when I was an, a student, I'd never heard of it. I didn't only heard about it because of the, the uh, job posting. Okay. Yeah. We've heard, we've heard other professors say too, that like someone handed them a job posting and then they applied and now they're, they're still here. So it's, yeah. it's cool to see that. Um, but yeah, thank you for sharing. And Dr. George, if you want to just go in about how you got here. Uh, sure. Um, so uh, I, uh, my, my father is in the military, so we, moved, we kind of moved around quite a bit. So I don't really have a hometown. Uh, but um, Kingston, I, I, we did spend a fair bit of time in Kingston. And I did uh, some of my elementary schooling and high schooling uh, there and then uh, left for a little while. And then I returned uh, to Kingston to do my undergrad at Queens uh, in chemistry. And uh, near the end of my four years, as I was kind of trying to figure out what to do with my life, um, and I was looking kind of look job hunting as many fourth year students do. And I realized that kind of the, the kind of jobs that I was really interested in needed some additional education. Um, so I said, okay, well, I, I guess I'll do a, do a master's and uh, you know it's just another another two years or so and uh, so then I ended up uh, at the University of Guelph uh, under Richard Oakley who is my supervisor in inorganic chemistry and uh, kind of speaking to I don't know serendipity or weird moments in your life that takes you on a different path 
I never in a million years thought about doing my PhD. I, I was really intent on just getting my master's and, and moving on. Um, but one day I happened to be in my supervisor's office and it was really something minor. Like I think I, I just needed a form signed or something like that. And uh, my supervisor said, uh, oh, it's time for you to transfer into the PhD. And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> spur of the moment um but uh it was weird uh, i mean i guess I, I felt that you know if he if he thought i had the ability to do it then um you know maybe i should go for it and my graduate work i was really enjoying it and it was going well so it's like okay well what's another three years or so um and uh got my phd there um, but near the end I, of that, I, I really discovered that I kind of like the teaching side of, of academia more than the research side. I, I love being in the lab and doing experiments, but with regards to running my own research program and things like that, I didn't really think that was necessarily my forte. Uh, so I, I started looking around for uh, teaching positions. Um, and. Uh, at the time, I mean, I, I applied to lots of schools in the US. They had lots of opportunities. Of course, they have a lot more universities and colleges than, uh, that, than Canada does. And, uh, um, but, and the only job in Canada that I ended up applying to was Ryerson. Um, and at the time, I almost didn't apply to that either because it, they had advertised an organic uh, position uh, and I was an inorganic chemist, but uh, you know, just kind of tossed my my resume into the into the ring there, and uh, here I am, 21 years later. So uh, weird things, yeah. Take you know, take a chance, take the opportunities when you when they come up, um, and uh, things will happen. Yeah, I think it's a good lesson for us students too, because I think we have so much anxiety trying to plan everything that happens in our life but sometimes it's just luck and like you can't plan everything that happens. Like it's good to have some sort of idea, but at the end of the day, like things will happen, things will come to you, so. You know, and ultimately I think if you, you keep working hard and, and putting effort into it, the opportunities will come your way. They might take a little while, yeah. but, but things do happen if you keep at it. Yeah, I believe in that. So as students, how were your grades like? And uh, did you know what you wanted to be as a kid? So like elementary school, high school, did you know you wanted to be professors? I don't I think the answer is no, but maybe uh, Dr. Foster, if you wanna go first. Sure. Um, I didn't have a specific plan uh, when I was in um, high school. I really enjoyed sciences, but I also enjoyed math. And I actually also really enjoyed languages. And truthfully, it was actually a toss up between sort of a science math based program or going into languages. And um, I really wasn't sure which one because I enjoyed them all equally. Um, but then I, I thought that there would be more opportunities for a career in sciences. And so that's what I chose for university. Uh, so I was sort of focused in on, I want to have a career. I know I want to have a career that's interesting, that's engaging. And I felt that there was more opportunity for me to do that in the sciences. Um, in terms of being a good student, I, I, I was a fairly good student and I did enjoy learning. Uh, but I have to say it, again, a lot of thanks goes to my grade seven teacher 
who taught me how to study effectively. And she was just terrific. She gave us strategies and I was, I, I followed them quite closely. And she talked about the importance of frequent regular review. She talked about the importance of testing yourself. She also talked about the importance of uh, actively presenting. And I know I'm, I may have, if I've taught any of you, I probably told you this in 361 at some point, a really good way to know that you've understood the material is rather than reading it and rereading it and rereading it again, read it over and then stand up, hopefully in an empty room or with your friend or, you know, uh, uh, mate or whatever, stand up and present to them what you have just learned. And what you'll find is that when you actually begin to teach somebody, even if it's the empty air in front of you, that's when you really learn what you know and what you don't know. And so it was a really effective strategy for me to, to sort of self-assess how much have I really learned? I mean, you can, you can say you've learned a lot when you're, when you're studying, but then in fact, when you actually, you know, uh, are, are able to display that learning in, a, in an act of communication, that's when it really hits the road in terms of um, your, um, the outcomes. Um, the other thing that I learned to do in university was that I found out that there were copies of old exams. Uh, in fact, I really had to, I, I heard this again through a friend who told me, hey, in third year, I didn't, I didn't realize it until third year, if you go to the Laidlaw Library at U of T, buried in the Laidlaw Library, dusty old volumes, there are old exams. And I was thrilled with this. And what I ended up doing with them is that I ended up um, practicing with them. Uh, and what I would do is I would actually sit down, I would put away all the books, and I would try to mimic having an exam in front of me and, and giving myself a, a defined period of time to write it. And I'd try to do the best job I could writing that exam in a sort of an exam situation. And then I'd put it away and come back a little later, and then I would spread out all my books and the lecture notes and everything, and I would mark it and pretend I was the professor. And it was really interesting doing that because that's when you really realize, wow, I missed this, I missed this. And I found that that was such a good exercise in helping to helping me to self-assess my, my, my um, uh, real knowledge, my true knowledge, and my abilities in terms of in terms of the course. So, so I, I guess I learned those, those uh, um, skills and strategies through um, friends and teachers and um, it really made a big difference. And so, yeah, it, it helped me to be able to do fairly well at school. Yeah, no, that's very good advice. And uh, Dr. Johnson, did you have a similar experience as a kid? I, I kind of lost the question a little bit. Um, what did you want to be as a kid? And were you a good student? Um, as a kid, I had no real conception about what I wanted to be, but there was a lot of pressure to be in science. I also really enjoyed history and language. And I would, I think I, for a while I was thinking about being a translator, but um, that was uh, that was next. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you need some parental support. So um, <clears throat> that sort of 
you know, what in terms of what I wanted to be, but, you know, as long as it was science-based, I could have done any or engineering, I probably could have done anything I wanted. Um, I just didn't really have any idea what I wanted to be. Um, my grades were okay. I wouldn't say that they were super fantastic or anything like that. Um, you know, I, and I, I find that I still make some of the same sorts of mistakes now that I did when I was in grade one, you know, inverting things and things like that. Um, sometimes I work too quickly, but my, my brain's faster than my hands or my mouth. And I, I get, uh, too far ahead of myself sometimes. So I, I say the wrong things or write the wrong things, which is not what I was thinking. Um, so I do that kind of thing all the time. And I think all those sorts of things, they do lead to lower grades. But I always really tried more to work towards understanding ideas than memorizing. And I, it's a little bit more work at the beginning, but in the end, it saves you so much time. And you find that you've, you know, if you need the same material year after year after year, you just have to brush up on it. You don't have to relearn it because it's already there. So I think that's sort of the biggest thing that I, I learned along the way. I had some really good teachers in high school that helped prepare us for independent study. So I was, <clears throat> excuse me, I, when I went to high school, I was still grade 13. And grade 13 was kind of, my high school anyway, was a little bit like university in the sense that we had to buy our textbooks and we were responsible for what we did. And the teachers kind of guided us sort of into that university experience. And so I learned a lot from that. And I used to, I loved doing math problems. I'd find an empty classroom and I would fill up the blackboards with, with my math homework. Um, that's where I did my homework. And uh, it was hardly ever on paper, but it was really helpful just to stand there and write it down on the blackboard with chalk. And, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed that process. And, <clears throat> Early, you know, I think I always enjoyed teaching. I remember when I was little and we, when we first moved to London and realizing that the people around me, you know, the other kids in the neighborhood didn't understand French and I couldn't understand how they didn't know French because, you know, I grew up, um, I learned French fairly early. And so I, at that age, I could just convert back and forth between them without really thinking about it. I can't do that anymore but I remember rounding them up you know playtime and I'd be trying to teach them French <laughs> so I think I always enjoyed teaching to some extent yeah I um I agree with what you said about um it's better obviously to understand than to memorize some courses I feel like we have to memorize certain steps or names and I think the best way to memorize that is to like associate it with something that you already know so like if you have to memorize a certain name, something that like stands out to you, I find that the easiest method to, to memorize it, like certain like acronyms to use because some things like you have to memorize. Yeah, there's always a certain amount you have to memorize, but generally I've found that with that type of thing that if I could use, use it, then I would remember it or just sort of think in eventually. 
<clears throat> and I got really good with things like organic chemistry and actually biochemistry too. My method of studying is I just sit down with a stack of blank paper and start writing. Yeah. Like practice problems, practice problems, other things, just anything I remembered, <laughs> that sort of thing. And then I go through and see, well, what did I miss? Yeah, no, that's the best way. And uh, Dr. George, what did you want to be as a kid? And were you a good student? Um, for a long time, I wanted to be a police officer. Uh, and then, but I also generally really liked science throughout, throughout my whole childhood. Um, so then I thought about, you know, I also thought about forensic sciences because I thought, I thought that was pretty cool. And this was like way before CSI, you know, so I was ahead of the curve there, but, um, then I thought, well, maybe I could blend police work and forensic sciences and then, um, but, uh, ultimately that kind of, uh, fell by the wayside. And in, in high school, I, I, I knew I did really well at sciences and I knew I wanted to be in some science. I actually generally did better in physics than chemistry. So I, I actually, to this day, kind of don't quite know why I picked chemistry, but uh, I, I, I think, you know, I, I like the challenge of it. And I, and uh, so that's what I went for. But I did almost switch to physics in my first year of university. Um, but I, I stayed in chemistry. Uh, was I a good student? Well, I think I think like many students, I mean, I did really well in high school and I thought I was pretty, pretty hot stuff there. Uh, but getting to first year of university was a real wake up call. Um, in that, uh, you know, my grades certainly went down uh, for a bit and it was quite shocking, you know, to go from really outstanding or really good grades to saying, you know, what's going on here. Uh, and so like many students, I, I discovered that, you know, kind of what worked in high school doesn't always work for you in university. And you really have to kind of have that flexibility to take a new approach. Because, um, you know, something I see in, in, in first year students all the time, is just kind of like, well, this worked for me before. And if I keep doing it, it will work. And it, and it doesn't pan out for them. Um, and, they, and they get really frustrated, of course. Uh, so you have to, you know, when things aren't working, have that flexibility to try try new things. Um, and yeah, I did okay in university. I wasn't I wasn't stellar. I I kind of put myself more in the kind of the grinder crowd. You know, I put in a lot of hours and time to kind of get, you know, okay marks. But uh, there are certainly you know those around me who spent a lot less time and did a lot better than I did. So. Um, but we encounter that everywhere, right? Um, but but uh, yeah, so grad school, I, I made the minimums, but not much more than that, for sure. Um, but uh, in the end, everything kind of worked out, but kind of going to back to, uh, you know, I liked uh, Deborah's comment about teaching um, because for sure, trying to teach something will really let you know when you know it or not. And, uh, you know, honestly, it wasn't until I started teaching or uh, actually I can remember this. My first teaching gig was at University of Guelph. I taught one semester there and I was teaching buffers, um, which is probably the hardest topic in all of first year chemistry, acid bases buffers, the bane of all students. And I can still remember the moment sitting in my office preparing my lecture for buffers where 
it finally all clicked. You know, it's like it only took me nine years of university to finally understand buffers, uh, but I got there. So uh, maybe yeah, try that teaching thing. Might uh, try it earlier than I did, and maybe you'll have uh, more success. Success. Yeah, it's always like scary in first year when you hear a prof say like, um, "You guys will probably have difficulties with this," because that means that they probably had difficulties with it as well. I remember, I remember learning buffers in first year, and I remember. <laughs> my prof saying like you guys will have difficulties <laughs> um but we'll move on so we can continue with you dr george what do you spend um what do you spend most of your time at ryerson doing um well as i said i, I focus most of my teaching is these really large first year courses so um uh that comes with a, a fair bit of administrative type work just keeping the course going and responding to student emails and uh, you know requiring lots of organization and communication so that you know everybody knows what's going on because I mean this semester I think that I have 560 in the course so there's a, there's a tremendous amount of time preparing things and organizing things and trying to be uh, keep up with, with student inquiries um, or just organizing a test, for example, like in non, you know, in non-COVID times and non-quarantine times, like a midterm would come along, and uh, you know, we'd have a test in uh, twenty different rooms in three different buildings, and so I'd have to round up, you know, all these TAs and organize the tests and count the tests and separate them and alphabetize them and give all the TAs their instructions. So, uh, large courses have a, a, a large workload. Uh, and that kind of stuff, in addition to just like the teaching. Um, and then, um, like I said, I have some other administrative, over time I've had a number of administrative roles like program directors and that. And so that there you're dealing with a kind of program uh, issues and, and, and larger curricular issues. Um, and then uh, various committees as well. I serve on a number of different committees that review Ryerson policies that have been on uh, the Academic Standards Committee, uh, which reviews all kinds of curriculum things. That, and that's a, that's a lot of work, that committee. It's kind of two hours a week, every week, um, with a lot of reading and, and preparation for those things. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of different service activities and my teaching are pretty much occupy most of my time. Um, but I do uh, also do a little bit of kind of chemical education research stuff. Those tend to be smaller projects that uh, I can either manage myself or occasionally I might have a, a fourth year thesis student doing a project uh, or uh, students, uh, volunteer students doing the SCI 999 course. So I'm, I'm kind of interacting with them as well on a, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So when you when you teach like a course again that you've already taught, do you think it's like do you find that it's still the same amount of preparation, like when it comes to like lecturing? Um, well, from the the actual course content part, that you know from year to year that that doesn't change much. Um, you know, because uh, you know, if, unless we change a textbook or something like that, and then you have to kind of restructure your notes and that. So th that aspect doesn't change very much, but. You know, a lot of the other administrative stuff, like organizing tests and that, like even though I've done it 
you do it every year and you get really, you get more efficient at it, but it still occupies that time every year. That doesn't go away, even though you've done it before, right? So there's a lot of things that will always take up a bunch of time. Um, and, uh, and then every year you have a, a, new, a new group of students too, right? And so that demand varies. Some, some years, you know, might be very smooth, but other years you, depending on that group, they, there might be more, uh, more issues to deal with on a, on a one-by-one student basis kind of thing. Yeah, okay, I see. And um, Dr. Foster, what do you spend most of your time doing at Ryerson? Well, it's actually, I, I guess I split my time four different ways. I think as a professor, I'm supposed to do it three different ways, but I find there's actually four different ways that I, sp I split my time. So, so I am teaching and I'm teaching a combination of, well, I teach the third year biochemistry, which is I think 300, 330, 350 students now. So it's a, it's a large course, not as large as uh, the courses that Dr. George teaches, but it is definitely also a large course. And then I have some smaller courses as well. Uh, the, the infection immunity course and some grad courses, which are much smaller in nature. And they have an entirely different, I have to, I use an entirely different approach when I'm teaching them and also a different approach, whether they're undergrad or graduate courses. So I do spend a fair bit of time just developing my courses. And then once I've got the courses and if the content doesn't change or the textbook doesn't change, then it's every year I'm reviewing, I'm revising, I'm trying to uh, um, put in new examples, uh, new sort of problem sets or new ways of thinking about the material because uh, I'm always looking for ways that will be better to, to, to try to, to communicate a particular point or uh, help students understand a particular idea or concept. But I'm also looking for ways to make this, you know, engaging and, and have real world relevance. So if new things come along, um, I want to put them into the course. So I know not this past uh, winter, but the previous winter, I was teaching infection immunity. And of course, as I'm teaching infection immunity, COVID is hitting. And so there were constant examples every week coming up that would be fantastic for the course. I mean, terrible for the world, but it was, the, 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 the time was just ripe with examples to bring into the class. So, so I was retooling my, my classes, my presentations, my, uh, the, the discussions that we were going to have and some of the assessment tools I was going to use in the class so that I could try to bring in these real world examples. Um, and then, there is time, I think Dr. George alluded to that as well, uh, just being in your office, advising students, assisting them with their learning, uh, meeting them one-on-one -on -one or perhaps in small groups. So that's all the teaching part. Um, the second part is that I also have a research program and um, I have a lab at Mars. And so when it was non-COVID time, I was splitting my time between St. George campus where I have my uh, office in Kerr Hall and where all my classes would be taught and then I'd be heading over to Mars and um, uh, meeting up with my students and I'd have an office there as well and we'd all we also had a, a place for uh, lab meetings a seminar room for lab meetings so that was um, uh, part of my regular routine and with that I was I was mentoring students in the research lab and working with them uh, designing experiments, um, 
uh, analyzing the data that they would bring back, evaluating it, interpreting it, uh, and then also writing papers. And of course, writing papers wouldn't happen exclusively at Mars because the whole thing is sort of mixed together. It might happen at night or it might happen back in my Kerr Hall office. So there were lots of parts where, where I was blending and, and doing things, uh, even though they were not necessarily at Kerr Hall or um, at, at Mars. Um, presenting my research is another important aspect. And also um, prepping my students to present their research uh, was an important aspect. In fact, I wanted to make sure every student in my lab was able to present their research as often as they could and, in, and as a, in, in a variety of different um, uh, locales at different events, different symposia, because of course that whole communication skill is so important. Uh, and then I was writing grant applications um, and uh, serving on supervisory committees for other students um, outside of my own research program, but maybe in research programs of colleagues. Uh, so that was the whole research side of it. And then there were a number of administrative um, uh, positions that I held, as I said, the grad program director, uh, the undergrad program director, interim dean of YSGS. And in those positions, you're working on, you're developing curriculum, you're developing and working on admissions criteria. You are reviewing the applications of students coming into the program and you're working with perhaps a small um, admissions committee to evaluate those applications and decide who is uh, best suited um, for application to the program. Um, I'd be working on scholarship evaluation committees, um, program review committees. So, so we're reviewing programs. Um, uh, and then I guess, so that was the administrative capacity. And then finally, there's also commitment to my profession. Um, which is essentially that I would be invited to serve as a journal reviewer. Uh, and there's a number of different journals that I, I review papers for um, as a grant reviewer. Um, so grant applications written by faculty members um, from other institutions would then be forwarded to me by whatever agency applied to, and I would be reviewing those grants. Uh, of course, I didn't understand any of this when I, uh, first became uh, um, a prophet Ryerson. I had no idea that there were all these different roles. Um, even, for example, I was invited to serve on the NSERC uh, um, grant evaluation panel. And so for three years, I was traveling down to Ottawa and I would be reviewing applications that came from faculty members all across Canada. And uh, we would be together reviewing these applications and it was a very rigorous process. Of, of doing this. And um, in fact, it, it really opened my eyes to how rigorous the process is and how it works. And um, it also gave me a great deal of comfort that the money that our federal government is uh, dispensing each year for um, uh, research grants is in fact being um, uh, rigorously um, uh, adjudicated. So I was quite impressed with that. Um, and then even things like um, uh, I'm right now I'm is serving as an external reviewer for uh, a program proposal by another university, and that's going to happen next week where I'm going to have a site visit, online site visit, um, at another university uh, to review their their graduate program proposal because of course you need to bring in um, 
independent experts who can look at those programs at other universities. Uh, so honestly, it's there's a whole lot that I do. And um, do I feel stretched thin? When I, when I enumerate everything that I do, as I'm sure in the case of Dr. George and Dr. Johnson, they would say, oh yeah, I'm doing so many different things. And yes, it's, it's a, a very busy life, but I love it. I love the, 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 the variety and uh, the way it, it stretches me academically and um, intellectually. So I actually really do enjoy it. Uh, it is sometimes a little too busy. And every once in a while I say, oh, I'd like things to slow down a little bit. But for the most part, I really love it. So anyway. Just out of curiosity, so you see so many different grants and research proposals. Do you learn something new every day of like- Absolutely. That's so interesting. Yeah, I do. In fact, that, that is one of the richest experiences of being an academic is that you never stop learning. And uh, I often tell students, you know, that, that your learning is like a web. This is a, a very, it, it, um, uh, it, I, I can't remember who, who cited it, but it talks about knowledge being like a web and the denser the weave, the better the chance that the next pearl of wisdom will actually catch and hold and connect to all the other bits of learning that you have. The chances that it will, will, will connect and hold and stay there for you is better if your knowledge uh, web is denser. And I, I find that that's exactly the case, that if the more I learn, the more connections I can make between things and the more it helps me to better understand the world and, um, and, and my particular discipline. Um, so yes, I, I am learning every day and I find it for the most part, incredibly fascinating. I feel very privileged to be in an environment where I can read grant applications by some of the most amazing scientific minds in the country and, and learn from them, just as I feel privileged to be able to go to our departmental seminars and hear these presentations by uh, these these experts in different areas. And I think I come away and I'm like, oh, I've learned something new today about that. And it might even be in an entirely different area compared to my own discipline, but I love it. So interesting. So inspiring. Now I want to go out and like learn more and read a book or something like it. Yeah. So inspiring. <clears throat> I love that. Thank, thank you. Yes. I, I love it. And Dr. Johnson, what do you spend most of your time doing at Pearson? It, at the moment, it feels like I spend most of my time in meetings. Um, <clears throat> I, aside from, so, you know, before COVID, I didn't have, I had lots of meetings, but nowhere near as many as now. Um, before then, I was, most of my time was spent with teaching. So a lot of it was dealing with students, student emails, advising students in my classes, revising my notes. Um, <clears throat> developing test questions, things like that. And that's, that would take a lot of time. I also read the literature quite extensively, both in chemistry, biochemistry, you know, whatever strikes my fancy. Uh, that's one of the perks of our job is that we get to be intellectually curious. So we get to spend time finding out about something just because we're curious and we want to know an answer. 
And <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily pan out to any that anybody else would see, but it certainly enriches our experience and our knowledge base. So it's it's building that tight weave that Dr. Fotzer was talking about so that we have we can make those connections. And <clears throat> sometimes it gives us insights into how things would work that maybe other people haven't because they haven't read the same set of papers and things that we have. So we all have you know, various ways that we can contribute to science, the scientific endeavor. And sometimes it's just a matter of just being able to communicate with people who are not scientists. So I'd say that that's probably the biggest part of my job. I, as the academic coordinator for first year science, I also have periods where I am busy uh, advising first year students, usually because they're in some kind of academic difficulty. Sometimes it's because they want to change programs and they're not sure about what they want to do. Maybe they don't want to do science at all. So I help walk them through various different things that they might want to consider when they are trying to choose what else they might want to do. And I sometimes I'm dealing with students who are very bright and they're good at everything, and but they still have to choose a program. They can't be a generalist. So how do they choose? And they're very worried about making mistakes. And I think one of the things I've learned is it's, it's a good idea to try things. And if you don't like it, that's okay. You've still, you've learned something really valuable, which is that you have a little bit of an insight into what that field is about, but you know it's not for you. And so you're not going to waste more time going down that path because it's not your thing. So that means try something else. And that your know, life is really a whole bunch of experiments like that. We're trying to learn things and try different things and see how we feel about them and how we react. And as we move through, we become richer people. Yeah, I think it's always difficult to make a decision in life. And it's also sometimes inevitable that you'll make a mistake and it's just a learning lesson. And, and yeah. You, yeah, you can always like change your mind, do something else. There's no, there's no clock. There's no like limit, time limit of like your life. You can do a program, decide that you don't like it and then switch to something else. Well, that, and that, that's very, very much mirrors what I understand current employment is like for most people that they are changing or jobs, maybe it's careers, but I think it might actually just be jobs about seven times mm -hmm. in their working life. And so you do need to have a bit of flexibility. Sometimes people change because they get bored. Sometimes they change because an opportunity comes up and they decide to grab it and see where, where it leads. So there's, you know, it's good for us to be flexible and what we take with us is all of that groundwork, all of that, those thinking skills that we are learning or that you guys are learning um, in your undergraduate careers. Yeah, and Maurice just confirmed that it was- yeah, It is yeah. careers, yeah. Seven times, it's crazy. And it is crazy. Sorry, do you uh, still participate in research, a research lab? I've never had a research lab. Okay. I, so that was, uh, I know, so that was part of my, the conditions of my employment that I was not going to have a research lab. Okay. Um, that's what Ryerson told me, and which is perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. um, I have done a little bit of pedagogical research, mostly when I was teaching organic chemistry, 
since I haven't taught that or any organic chemistry, probably close to 10 years now, I haven't really done much pedagogical research, but I do do quite a bit of work developing case studies, mostly for pharmaceutical chemistry. Okay. Okay. And Dr. George, do you do research with teaching or it's, it's um, like, you don't have your own lab or anything, but do you have like, yeah. So, so similar to Dr. Johnson and, and there's other members of our department are kind of uh, more uh, teaching, teaching focused faculty. Um, but yeah, I do. The, the term is uh, discipline based education research, DBER. So, or chemistry, you know, specifically chemistry education research. Um, so yeah, I have different different aspects of different projects I've done over the years, and I, you know, I uh, sometimes with student help and sometimes not, and I uh, I present my results at at conferences and just you know disseminate my work and and things like that, um, and so in a way, and and I kind of use my classes as part of my research, so my. It works really well and that my teaching is my research in, in many aspects. Um, and that that really helps uh, benefits me, but also benefits the students because uh, like Dr. Foster, you know, we're always and Dr. Johnson, we're always kind of looking for new and better ways to, to teach those same topics. Um, but you know, times change, students change, learning styles and other things change. Uh, and so we keep up to date with uh, with all that kind of current education research. Um, I also do uh, as as and it kind of falls under what they call scholarly activity. Is that I've done a fair bit of work for um, publishers, um, textbooks, and things like that. Either reviewing textbooks uh, or working on um, uh, materials. I've uh, actually. You know, you, you use mastering chemistry at, at some point if you're in first year with me. Um, so I've done work on mastering chemistry. Uh, I'm a co-author on the solutions manual for the TRO textbook. Um, and so all that that kind of stuff actually falls under kind of our, our scholarly activity type umbrella. So when you say you do like education based based research, are you trying to like figure out like um, learning styles of students and like how to best um, like uh, yeah, that's part of it, but it's a very, very broad field uh, of, of education research, um, studying all aspects of learning and teaching. Um, you know, it can follow things uses of technology, but uh, some psychological type type educate uh, research in there as well um but there are whole it's a whole field i mean there are certainly whole journals devoted to science education research chemistry education research there's a journal of chemical education for example is a big one um the journal of science teaching international journal of science teaching so there is, it is a kind of a it's not a well-known field but it's a very large field um yeah. And, and it's a big community. Yeah, I didn't, well. even, I didn't even know that. There you go, you learn something every day. Um, and Dr. Foster, do you want to just go into a bit about uh, what you do research on in your lab? Sure. So my research is focused on understanding uh, how specific gastrointestinal pathogens infect us. And uh, 
you may be familiar with E. coli 0157. You may have heard of it before. Uh, in fact, I think there's a, a very sad case of a little boy in BC who has um, who has been left brain damaged after um, uh, being infected with E. coli 0157. It's just it's just on the news the other day. Anyway, this pathogen is associated with often associated with eating undercooked hamburger or eating contaminated romaine lettuce. There are lots of other ways that you can become infected with it. Uh, but those are two uh, obvious foodborne um, uh, ways in which you can become infected. Um, so the pathogen causes acute gastroenteritis, it causes bloody diarrhea, and in some cases it can actually lead to a more serious systemic complication called hemolytic uremic syndrome, which can be fatal. So trying to understand how the pathogen and related pathogens infect host cells, being us humans, and how the human responds to infections is key to us being able to develop uh, strategies to both prevent and to treat the infections. So we're particularly interested in trying to understand how the microenvironments within the gastrointestinal tract influence the pathogenicity or the virulence, the disease-causing aspect of these organisms. And of course, if you think about, uh, if you ingest a foodborne pathogen, it is going to uh, hit the, um, uh, your stomach and it's gonna to have to pass through acute acid stress in your stomach. And of course we know that while the acute acid stress does kill some of them, it doesn't obviously kill all of them. Otherwise we would never become infected. And the idea is, is that it, th those that make it through that acid stress, how has the exposure to that acid stress modified their virulence properties? And in fact, our research has shown that in fact, it makes them even more virulent, more able to successfully infect. And sim uh, we've had similar results with um, exposure to bile because we, we know that bile is like a deter has a detergent-like action on um, the membranes of these pathogens. Uh, and yet these pathogens survive passage through the small intestine and exposure to bile and what happens to them in terms of their virulence. And again, we've done the experiments to understand how it affects various virulence properties. And finally, uh, we've looked at uh, exposure to various microenvironmental stresses in the uh, large intestine as well. So the stomach, the small intestine and the large intestine. And we've looked at various virulence properties and how they're modified in, in response to those. So it's quite exciting, um, scary to think that these pathogens have been able to do this uh, and, and be so successful in responding to what should be a host assault. Uh, but anyway, so that's the, the nature of my research. Is it ever like application-based, like trying to find? So great question. Yes, actually, um, in fact, we just uh, published a paper, uh, I guess in May in, uh, scientific reports, which is a nature journal. And um, what we were doing there was we were looking at the combination of uh, a peptide and a couple of repurposed antibiotics to see if we could better target these pathogens because we now understand more about how they infect. We understand how they're infecting essentially in situ. In other words, where, where um, they have already passed through these various environments and now taking advantage of that information, could we then uh, use various agents 
that together could disable them. And so, yes, in fact, we've been able to do that. Uh, we also, um, in another study, looked at the combination of an antimicrobial peptide and acid stress, because we know what happens when the pathogen sees acid stress. Can we now target that um, uh, vulnerable uh, time for them with an antimicrobial peptide and in fact kill them? And we did that study in a mouse model and we showed that that was in fact effective. Now this is a long way from a treatment strategy. And I think probably the last year of us seeing how these vaccines have rolled out and how the clinical trials have, have occurred and, and the kind of information that we're still getting from the clinical trials, I think we as a public better understand the challenges to bringing an idea to fruition in terms of a treatment strategy. But yes, it does have, uh, um, certainly my re research has implications for treatment and prevention. Okay, thank you. And we'll continue on with you. So what do you like most about your job and what do you like least about your job? Hmm, what do I like least? All right, well, I guess what I like most about it, I think I really love interacting with students. I think that has to be my favorite part of the job. I love their fresh, bright, sort of innovative ideas and things. I like the way they look at something differently than I do. I like their questions about the material. It really makes me think deeper or differently about uh, the material that I'm working with. Um, I think they keep me young and sharp because they keep me on my toes. Um, I also love to watch them blossom through the years. So I love seeing a student coming into first year and graduating in fourth year and hopefully having developed, a, um, you know, having, having become an independent, um, inquiring learner um, that feels fulfilled and has a, has a plan for what they're going to do next, or perhaps even seeing a student come into graduate school and watching them as they progress through graduate school and hopefully, again, blossoming. That, that is that is one of the greatest joys for me is seeing that and, and hearing from them years later, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and, and uh, um, how they've taken their careers in different directions. And truthfully, I know Dr. Johnson talked about helping students, um, regardless of whether they end up going into sciences or some other um, programs. I know in when I was an undergraduate program director, I used to have students coming to me in first year, sometimes struggling with the fact that, well, I'm not doing as well as I expected to do. And I'm wondering, is our science is really for me? Is this program really for me? And in some cases, after lots of you know, talk and, and soul searching and uh, um, on their part, they decided to take a different direction. But in fact, I, I've always said to them, please let me know what you end up doing and how it goes. And I know I've gotten calls back, um, both from students who have graduated from our programs, but also students who have gone on in a different direction. And I remember being so happy to hear that this student, one particular student I can remember many years ago, had chosen an entirely different direction and contacted me a year later and said, I'm in business and I'm absolutely loving it. And it's really great. And I feel like I found my groove. And, and that really, that really uh, makes me feel fulfilled. So uh, I have to say that, that that's probably the thing that I like most about my job. And you also asked what I like least. Yeah. Um, what do I like least? Hmm. Probably the things that Dr. George talked about earlier. All those 
exams and corralling, you know, uh, um, the marks and putting them into sheets. And, and I know what uh, Dr. Johnson and I have even, you know, through uh, doing the 361 together, you know, what is the best strategy for dealing with these massive numbers of marks and inputting them into the spreadsheets and calculating grades and that kind of thing. I suppose that that would be the thing that I like at least about my job. Okay. And what do you, you kind of touched on like your favorite part, but is that what inspires you the most about, about being a professor and the career? And uh, yeah, I have to say, I mean, that, that is probably uh, the thing that I love most, but I, I love teaching. I love the research. I love, you know, working with students and, and, and sort of stretching my mind and thinking about new experiments and thinking about uh, how we can address a particular problem. That's great. I, um, I find all of that very nurturing uh, and, and fulfilling. I have to admit, uh, many, many years ago when I first started at Ryerson, uh, and I was primarily teaching at that point, it was only a few months into uh, um, my appointment. And uh, I went to visit the chair and I sat down in the chair's office and he said, so how are you settling in? How do you like it? And I remember my words to him then were, I have stepped into a pair of shoes that fit. It's fabulous. I love it. And I remember that feeling and I remember being so enthusiastic and I still feel it to this day, you know, that this has just been the right move for me career-wise and I have, I have loved it. So definitely I would say working with students, but also the teaching and the research has been great. The marking and the entering all those grades, <laughs> are not my favorite thing but they're a small part yeah okay thank you and um dr johnson is that your least favorite thing as well um, marking is my least favorite but i love spreadsheets so i actually don't mind putting grades in spreadsheets and calculating grades and entering them that part doesn't bother me it's the marking that i really dislike that and sometimes getting a lot of the same uh, questions by email <laughs> um usually complaints that I don't particularly like. But um, I'd say that like Dr. George and Dr. Foster, my favorite thing really is interacting with students and feeling like I've made a difference to them. And I have several students from both um, our current programs as well as from other programs who keep in touch with me even though I'm not teaching them anymore. So some of them have graduated and they've gone on to graduate programs elsewhere and they contact me once or twice a year to chat and it's really really rewarding to have that feeling that I've made a difference to them and they they like to bounce ideas off of me and get advice and feedback and things like that. Okay thank you and Dr. George do you have anything to add with regards to your like favorite and least thing about your job? Uh, no, I think I, you know, many of the many of the same things that uh, Dr. Johnson and Dr. Foster have touched on. I mean, dealing the, the students are our constant inspiration, um, and every year you have a new group, and and that reinvigorates you. Um, so that's amazing. Being in an environment where you you have the ability to learn all the time, if you want to. Um, but you know, when it when it came to careers, you know, when I was thinking about careers, you know, I realized that I, you know, I wanted a job that wasn't the same thing all the time. 
you know, um, and although, yeah, I'm teaching the same courses and that, but, you know, every, every time it's, it's different and there's so many different things going on or in a university at any given moment uh, that if you want to learn about it, there, the opportunity is there. So it is a, a, a wonderful position to be in. Um, you know, th things I don't like, yeah, of course, you know, every job will have some negative aspects, but, uh, you know, things that kind of drag me down is kind of bureaucracy or, or you know, thing, things that, you know, just seem to cause more work and not make a lot of sense, you know, and, and this is taking up my, my time when I'd rather be doing valuable things, uh, other things. So, uh, but, you know, that... You know that's that's a minor part of it. I mean, I I love my job, and I think you know whatever whatever you the students, you know wherever whatever path you want to you end up taking is that you know you want to be able to wake up in the morning and you know look forward to going to work. You know, and you know money's great and all that kind of stuff, but if you're not happy in your in your career or your job, um, that's not good. So find something that makes you happy, for sure. I completely agree. And just briefly, um, what do you believe the most important transferable skills are for every student to have? So in your, uh, for Dr. Foster, like in your lab or just in life in general? So Dr. George, what do you think is an important transferable skill? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think communication skills are, are certainly one of the biggest being able to communicate verbally and and through written work is is a, a skill that pretty much any job needs um and and so i'd highlight i highlight that for sure uh that's transferable anywhere um i think the the skills we learned you know as scientists as you know going can be used in many other positions and our graduates have have learned that um, you know, we have graduates who, you know, they got a chemistry or biology degree, but they end up working in the financial world or, or all kinds of other places because, you know, we as scientists, we learn ways to, you know, analyze data and uh, figure, you know, problem solve and, and ways of looking at things that can be applied to all kinds of other positions. And so that kind of comes back to kind of the keeping this open mind about you know, your career paths and, and uh, you can use all these skills that you're learning in other places. Um, organization, uh, time management, being able to meet commitments, uh, you know, what, whatever is schedules and prioritizing because, you know, people learn that you are a dependable person, they will come to you and opportunities will, will come your way. Um, so I think I think those are all things that, you know, just going through a science program, you learn. I mean, it's, you know, science program is a, is a rigorous program. No one would, would ever deny that. Um, so uh, I, think, I think those are the big ones for me. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned those because last week we actually had a panelist who um, did biomed, did like at Ryerson and is now doing a completely different career path. But she said she does not regret it at all because she learned time management, uh, critical thinking, like you said, like everything that you said, she learned that from that science program. So yeah, we, we learned such important skills in this program that you can apply to anything, any job. And uh, Dr. Johnson, 
what are some transferable skills? Well, these are, <laughs> it's going to sound very similar to what Dr. George says. And um, I think the top two are the communication skills, both oral and written, visual, as well as the critical thinking skills. So a lot of that analysis and data management, all those sorts of things that you learn really well as science students, you know, thinking about things, asking questions, those are the kinds of skills they'll take you almost anywhere you want to go. Um, along the way, time management is really important and having some kind of an understanding of the organization you work in and how it's structured so that you can navigate the bureaucracy of it. Every organization has its own bureaucracy and you have to just learn how it works so that you can get through it with uh, and get what you want done with the least hassle. So sometimes it means that you might have to take a really roundabout route to get something done, but you'll be happy because you know what the route is and the people that you're working with will be happy because they'll say, oh, you just, you're using all the processes that are here anyway. As the people try to, uh, make things work more efficiently. Sometimes in bureaucracies that there are, they encounter problems, they get really frustrated and people kind of look at them because they've never done things that way. They think, what are you doing? This doesn't make sense. We don't do that this way here. So yeah, there's a, if there's existing routes to get things done, even if they're roundabout, just use them. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, take the boxes that are there and make them fit. I learned that actually from Dr. Foster. <laughs> Dr. Foster, do you want to add to that? Uh, all of these ideas are excellent. Again, I have communication as a, a, um, a key aspect of these transferable skills. And I had called it ability to research, but it, it involves, uh, incorporates critical thinking, problem solving. It's the idea that even though uh, you've learned uh, in, in this program, how to critically research being to, or, or to critically think to, to research a question, that those skills are transferable to all aspects of our life, whether you're going to be buying a house, like do your research, you know, consult the different sources, uh, um, uh, talk to the experts, all of these things are uh, skills that you've learned in this program, but you can apply it throughout your life. And then I guess the last part, uh, and, and, and time management, absolutely, um, uh, being dependable, I think these are really important skills. The only other thing that I would add to it is lifelong learning. Uh, be, uh, be willing to, to uh, sort of learn to guide your own learning and to, to dig deep into things that interest you. Uh, and I think that that's important and, and carrying that, um, that particular uh, attribute and that skill set uh, through life, I think will really serve you well. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, so we'll we'll wrap it up here with um, the recording. Julie, do you want to just stop recording? Yes.